welcome to the Easel Studio Podcasts. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast live from the International Liver Congress 2022. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Welcome to Easel Studio, your hepatology broadcast news, live from the International Liver Congress. In today's episode, we will discuss the highlights of day two of ILC 2022 here in London. And with me today, I have uh, Dr. Joanne Poisson from the University of Paris Cité, uh, and she's also a member of the Young Investigator Task Force of Easel. I also have with me uh, Professor Helena Cortes-Pinto from the uh, Faculty of Medicine at the University of Lisbon and also currently the uh, president of uh, UEG. Uh, and then also with me uh, Professor Alexander Krag from uh, Odense in Denmark, who is the uh, vice secretary general of ESL. Uh, you've probably seen him before in our earlier episodes. Uh, my name is uh, Tobias Böttler. I'm from the University of Freiburg and also member of the scientific committee of ESL, as is uh, my co-moderator, Professor Jean-Charles from Paris, who is also a member of the uh, ESL scientific committee. Thank you, Tobias. It's a great pleasure to be here for this uh, tea time of the ESL studio. And uh, first, I would like to talk with Joanne, because she's a member of the Young Investigator Task Force of ESL, the Young DNA of ESL, a very important point for us. And uh, you organized today uh, the Young Investigator Forum. And uh, could you tell us a little bit what I've been discussed during this session? Yes, it was a pleasure, and thank you very much for the invitation. So yes, this forum today was organized by two other members of the YI Task Force, which are Anna Taborowski and Philip Schwabon. And uh, the title was Liver Without a Border, so to improve the, you know, to going abroad for young investigators. The first talk was a pro and con on live or not to live, which is, was kind of first talk was given by Susana uh, Rodriguez uh, for the pro, which is when we are all pro going abroad, but the con part by Peter Fickert was I guess, more difficult. But as he said, it's like if you have to stay home, if you don't have a choice, because everybody, of course, everybody is pro to go abroad. Uh, he said a sentence, use the time you save in organization work and frictional energy for intelligent thinking. And use this time to learn your environment, your institution, and to create collaboration in your own faculty, which was very interesting. That's a smart idea. <laughs> yeah. The second talk was how to write a successful fellowship by Frank Tucker, and with a reviewer point of view, which is we don't have that a lot as a young investigators. And uh, the, the the thing he said is that, of course, the three important things to keep in mind is the institution where you go, the, your project, and of course, your, the applicant quality and your CV. And what he said, one sentence I remember, it's review, the, keep in mind that reviewers don't have time for that, are not paid for that, so be clear, concise, and in your application. <laughs> I think it's also a great advice. And the third talk was given by Sabina Lenz on how to manage this, this trip abroad and how to balance the, the, the work um, balance you know, with uh, regarding the family uh, issues. And, and she gave a very inspirational talk and a very good thermal role model and explained how she succeeded to balance you know, her family, uh, building a family while being abroad and being a very successful physician scientist. Yeah. 
thank you. So uh, coming from the young investigators, uh, Helena, uh, can we uh, talk about the uh, postgraduate course a little bit? Because today was the uh, second day and also the last day of the uh, postgraduate course. And uh, what was your highlight from today's part of the course? Well, first, uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I really enjoyed the postgraduate course. Uh, in fact, it was a little bit different from what is usual. Uh, and this concept of the personalized medicine, I think it's very much in the future. Uh, and uh, I, I liked uh, particularly two talks that I found very, very interesting. One was from Roita Lomba uh, about Nafudi and personalized medicine. And he very much highlighted the importance uh, uh, that we'll have in the future uh, to better know if, for example, our Nafti patients are most genetically based or metabolically caused, so that treatment can be, in fact, directed towards uh, other causes. And, uh, of course, this has also uh, implications to the clinical trials, and it's possible that many cl clinical trials do not show effect because they are not being applied to the right uh, patients. So uh, I think that increasingly we are going to be focused on personalized uh, action and to know exactly what kind of patient we face when we decide uh, the treatment. Let's uh, something, it's possible. Uh, the interesting point in the NASH genetic predisposition factors, before we, have, uh, we previously identified first PNPLF3 and after a second uh, gene that predisposed to uh, NASH and HEC also, uh, TMCCF2, and uh, additionally a third one. Uh, if you take the genetic risk factor alone, it don't predict a lot the disease because the uh, uh, odds ratio is uh, low. But if you add every genetic factor together, it increases the ability to predict a uh, patient to develop uh, cirrhosis with NASH. And uh, that's interesting. It is a combination of genetic risk factor. And previously, we have only one, and there is a, a low level of prediction. I think it's a very good yeah, point. Yeah, now we also see that there are some genetic factors that are protective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> we could try to silence some <laughs> and to yeah. put the others more active. Yeah. So I think there's a whole world of uh, news to, to get from there. And then the other also very interesting talk uh, was from Peter Gall and the HCC. Uh, and in fact, uh, um, it's, it's quite impressive how much we lack biomarkers uh, for our patients. So we treat patients uh, according just to their stage and to the severity of the disease, but we, we do not uh, yet uh, put treatments directed to the mechanisms or to as for example in the breast cancer they are very much uh, in front and on that so i think i think it's something that we have to work much more on defining specific uh, biomarkers for different kinds of uh, of liver cancers and then of course to direct and to target treatment uh, according to, to, what, uh, to what is uh, found. And of course, he also highlighted what I think that most of us do in our clinical practice, uh, the need for the multidisciplinary teams where each patient is discussed in great detail. Because in fact, each patient is always different uh, from, uh, from the other. Uh, and uh, it would be very good if in the future we can uh, further direct it. And the other point he also mentioned that I think uh, we are going to increasingly see is the combined treatments. Mm -hmm. So probably we cannot stay just with one treatment. Uh, uh, and uh, so I think we are going to see much more uh, combined treatments uh, and also combined local regional treatments with systemic therapies. 
so I think it's also a field that is really growing uh, and uh, and as we are seeing increasingly more patients, but both uh, this, uh, well, there were a lot of other very interesting things in the postgraduate course, mostly with artificial intelligence, but I will not <laughs> go on that. I think it's quite puzzling. But, but just to jump in the discussion about personal medicine in HEC, I liked also a point that uh, the non-invasive diagnosis of HEC have um, decrease our ability to identify biomarker because we have no tumor biopsy and especially in advanced stages. So maybe in the future uh, for advanced stages, maybe tumor biopsy and biobanking uh, for sure in clinical trial should be mandatory. If not, we never think uh, identified any uh, biomarker to stratify patients for sure. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The fact that we decided at a certain point that our cirrhotic patients did not need to do liver biopsy if they had all these criteria. In fact, led us with less material to study and to discuss. I'm not sure to which extent the liquid biopsies in the future and getting markers from, uh, that are in the blood can, uh, will help us with that. Because I'm not sure if anyone wants to come back to doing liver biopsies to, to the patients in a regular basis. Yeah. So Alexander, we've seen fantastic science today, but um, and yesterday, and we're looking forward to some more days of fantastic science. But there's also some other things that, you know, when we planned this whole thing uh, with the uh, scientific committee and the easel governing board, we thought about some new ideas uh, uh, on, on how to do this after we've had these uh, three years of, uh, of hiatus uh, with the face-to-face uh, uh, -face conferences. So what was your highlight of, you know, being here today? I think there are my many highlights. I think the key highlight was basically, I think, the sensation in my mind and in my heart. It just uh, walking around here and, as you say, we have uh, in the easel organization been working for this for many, many months. And all these visions, making this studio, having this amazing thing, doing live, but also creating space, room, entertainment, engagement, lots of science, and, and see how people thrive, this vibrant, atmosphere so I entering the room during the general session and we had the head count was almost 3,000 people tuned in walking through the easel village see how people engage and talk there's interaction in the exhibition hall everybody are just really enjoying this so I, I, I feel you cannot say that live, but basically I really feel proud on behalf of Easel that this is really coming true in a really nice way. And I really see people uh, enjoying uh, the atmosphere and what we're doing here. So, so, so really a, a great thing, yeah. yeah we have a little, a little background little noise, noise outside. Here. I'm not sure if the, uh, <laughs> because I hardly understood what the last two sentences that you were saying, yeah. but I'm guessing that's the uh, a general announcement here at the, at the venue. But so, um, yeah. Uh, I had many nice more I, I can share because, uh, of course, as in my position here in, in, in the leadership, we do many other things and basically in the same service. So we, we make this, I call it basically a scientific party we have here. Sometimes when you're kind of the host of the party, you're not necessarily the one enjoying most, <laughs> but you can employ how all the guests are really having this. And, and, and I'm just coming here from a meeting uh, uh, with our sister society from Latin America, Ale, 
and, and, and this way of engaging with great colleagues from the other side of the world, and actually with suffering, and they're suffering a little bit, there are not that many from South America, but the leadership made it here, and we have great meetings, a great interaction, so what can we learn from each other? And I saw some of that trajectory, and it's really remarkable. The 600 million people in Latin America, so 10 years ago they had 60 members or something in their association for the liver, that's not a lot. And now they've grown to 1,200, really innovative people making great events. Then you really think, okay, there's a great future for, 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 for liver patients. And then combining this with all these new breakthroughs, I see, okay, in my career for many years, the, the era we're living in now, New drugs for Wilson, who predicted that for 10 years ago. We have one in the general session. There are three companies in that. New for, for many rare diseases, rare cholestatic diseases, for pruritus. Many things going on in hepatitis B, delta, uh, uh, nephil D. So, so we should really enjoy being, uh, I think, hepatologists. And then easel being the place where, where this is uh, happening and we can make the surroundings where this can unfold. I think uh, this is just a dream scenario. And I don't want to wake up. <laughs> <laughs> so one of uh, another point that has been discussed during this meeting in several uh, presentations is the uh, impact of gender disparity and disbalance in clinical trial, in organ, uh, organ allocation, in the male, uh, for example, for allocation of uh, liver graft. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, gender disparity and uh, uh, in liver disease? Yes, with pleasure. Yeah, it's true that Easel, it's highly implicated in gender you know, equality in, in many levels. And it's not only having the speakers and the conference with gender balance, it's also considering the, the, the patient's treatment and management and how we can decrease gender bias in this regard. And also, how can we improve also uh, woman career and female role model, like I told you with, with Sabina Lenz, where you get inspirational talk. So I will go back on the patient treatment, which is a that usually we talk less about regarding gender balance. And uh, yes, today there were several talks. One on clinical trials where Mad uh, Israelson talked about the rifaximin alpha to treat uh, alcohol liver diseases. And, and it was very interesting talk. And he himself said that there was 83% of male in these clinical trials, which make it not really we can't really apply it for women. So it's a very interesting clinical trial with a nice effect on this drug, but then it's probably only for male. And this has been the case for a lot of clinical trials and a lot of drugs that we are now using for female and for male, but has been validated only or mostly in male. And, and, and Jean, can you hold that thought for a yeah. moment? Because I want to ask Alexander, because he was obviously heavily involved in that trial. Uh, so uh, we've heard that this took a long time for you to actually finish <laughs> up. Can you, can you uh, and also with regards to the gender disbalance thing, can you tell us a little bit about how this trial evolved and, and, and what the hurdles were that you have to overcome in, in, in yeah. performing First, trial. I want to say, and also this mass who was sort of leading his life, is not because he was lazy, yeah. but doing <laughs> randomized clinical <laughs> trials can be really tough. And I think this is one of the first larger trials in alcohol-related liver disease. So I think it's really important just to showcase that this is possible. These patients, they can comply to treatment. They can do repeated biopsies. So we set off for that in, 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 in relations with Horizon 2020 grant, the Galaxy Star uh, Consortium there, and that's yeah, almost seven years ago since all these ideas was initiated. And then you set out to do that. We had very ambitious, you know, we had 
136 patients in a randomized setting, 18 months treatment, dual biopsy. It looks very beautiful on paper, but then unfold it and, and, and follow it to an end. That's not really easy. So we went through, and there I just have to admit that we, we, we sort of stratified on, 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 on degree of fibrosis in the liver biopsy and, and on, 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 on level of alcohol consumption. But probably we should have considered uh, gender two. Uh, because we ended up, because that's the way it is sometimes in clinical trial, you need the patient and they fulfill the criteria, you, you simply just add them. So I think there's also kind of a bias with alcohol reload. There is probably more men and that that's, that's the issue. Um, so but I, I don't really know how to overcome it, but I agree with you, just like we know from many other things, it's relevant to have it across different races. It would probably really be important to do some sub-analysis to see, do you see the same directions also uh, for, 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 for the end. Just one question, uh, there is a, a lot of patients that refuse to participate to the trial. A, any difference between uh, men or women in terms of... Uh, no, no, not statistically significant, but of course that will go for any trial. A patient that is able to comply and really understand what's going on, have a liver biopsy, take a drug twice a day for 18 months, meet up for repeated biopsy, that is already a little selected group. So, so in that sense, but I think also going forward, if you want to apply this kind of treatment, you need patients who are also kind of compliant, who are motivated to, to go in there. So I think the issue was stage because we want really to screen very wide. So anybody within the field, you do a fibro scan, you go into this, and, and then you ask patients. So that was basically the filter. And then you end up with many who are really uneligible. And I think there was around 200 that were potentially eligible, but didn't want it. And mainly, liver biopsy is a barrier to many, but also the length of treatment. And we also have to recognize that many of these people are um, not partly marginalized, meaning that they're also, it's difficult for them to go back and forth for all the assessments. And there's also a cost side there, et cetera. So there are some barriers that is difficult to do uh, um, studies in, in, in less privileged uh, patients. And so Jean-Charles already uh, mentioned this, Jean, and I, I want to talk to you about this uh, a little bit more, uh, the organ allocation problem, where uh, you, you almost have the feeling that using that, the, the current allocation system, uh, males are being prioritized over females. Uh, and there was uh, some, in, some interesting uh, data uh, on this today. Yes. Can you share this with yes, us? Yes, uh, even yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday, from uh, Elisabeth Werner, mm -hmm. who came and talked about the male the three, uh, three zero that was validated in, in the US and, and to improve this, this bias that exists in, in organ allocation, in liver allocation. And today, there was a talk about Manuel Rodriguez Peralvarez uh, to promote what we call the GEMA, which is the Gender Equity Model for Liver Allocation. And what both teams realized that what is creating this bias is the creatinine uh, in the meld. And so it's the, 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 what uh, the, the group of Manuel Rodriguez Pervarez did is that they used a, a royal free hospital uh, glomerular filtration rate to replace the creatinine, which gave very good results in comparison of the classical meld, the meld sodium, and also uh, the meld 3 uh, zero to, to improve the, the allocation and to decrease these this disparities and this bias uh, 
against, if I can say against, but yeah. woman, yeah. you know. Okay. It, what is interesting is that it's, it was very interesting to several topics with focusing especially on this gender uh, issue. And I guess transportation is one of the topics where it has been the most, I mean, uh, yeah, there is a lot, most of publication in liver disease regarding gender inequity is in liver transportation. But I guess we could apply that to different topics. And maybe we should all in our own field, transportation is not my field, but in our own field think of do we have a gender bias that we don't see, that we are not, don't realize that exists, and how can we fight against that? Uh, yeah, really in, in our data, clinical data and even basic science, and always keep in mind that we need to be equal, but we are not the same, you know, in physiological point as aspect. And go ahead. And, uh, now, an interest, interesting point about gender bias in HEC, for example. Mm -hmm. Two points. If you search for uh, in PubMed um, clinical features, prognosis of HEC developed in women, there is very few articles. So, okay, it's most frequent in men, 80% men, but very few articles that target uh, the HEC in, uh, in women. It's not very frequent, uh, very, uh, uh, very few publications. And the second point in basic science, uh, people use only uh, uh, male mice to, uh, to do all the, the, gene the analysis of HEC development in mice because there is a higher rate of HEC incidence in, uh, in mice, uh, male mass, so it's more easy, but there is also HEC in uh, female mice. So almost all the, the basic studies uh, about HEC are developed in male mice. Yeah, it's the case for many subjects, yeah. because it decreases also viability, viability because, because male and female are not the same, it creates viability, which is more difficult after to, to show some you know, statistical effect. So it's easier to work on the male group, but then if you do that, at least do it also in the female group if you want to have two <laughs> homogeneous groups, but doing it in both, you know, if you don't mix them, at least do it. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add on this issue of gender <laughs> and deliver, because, you know, I, I've been thinking for a long time that uh, we should really work more on the differences uh, uh, regarding deliver, because, for example, the cardiologists have very recently published in Lancet a very large article concerning the differences between females and males regarding uh, cardiological diseases, mm. diseases of the heart. And, and it's very interesting because there are many differences, uh, not only in the access to clinical trials or to mm. treatments, but also in the physiopathology mm. of the diseases. So I think this is something <laughs> that we should probably work more in, in the future because we, sometimes when we think about gender balance, as a, we are always thinking about the access of women to, but for the patients there's also... No, it's uh, really interesting that this thing about gender balance, we always talk about there should be equal balance here between us, and that's very good, and position, wages, all these things, that's the core value we have. But then looking into the research we do, that this is, we have a far away from a real uh, gender balance uh, in, in, in the research we do, and I think this is a really important discussion. I'm sure this will drive a lot of interesting research in the coming years. For instance, as you're alluding to there, what is really behind all these, these differences? Does it tell us more about mechanisms? Can it open up for new targets or whatever? So there's a, there's a, I think there's a whole world layer of new understandings. And, and also what you started talking about there was also part of the path towards more individualized care because there must obviously be treatment differences. Uh, 
between the yeah, yeah between the male and female. Yeah. I think we need all to go in our old data. You know, because sometimes I'm doing basic science, I mix, I always point to mix female and male, but then I use it as a group, you know, as if it's the same, which is not. So sometimes I say, okay, I want to reanalyze everything and separate the two groups and see if the effect is maybe different, and then you can create new project and new discovery to really, you know, think of two different groups. Yeah. In you yeah. don't no. see it much around. We have the thing about the races, and particularly in, in, in US-based studies, but, but really not much about uh, uh, sensitivities to gender. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. And, and yeah. even for treatment effect, you know, yeah. for uh, systemic treatment in cancer and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's well known that uh, uh, in uh, cancer with half men, half women that are uh, uh, involved uh, with this cancer, most of uh, the patients, including clinical trial, are men. In, uh, it's, yeah. it's a nature paper that has yeah. been published on that. It's not uh, when, when it's not just, just us. No, no, no. It's even a nature paper, so don't worry about that. No, it's no. common in every specialty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> <all specialties. laughs> it's not a good news, so, actually. So, by coming from the one controversy, maybe to another one, Helena. I'm completely confused um, about albumin. Uh, so this has been going on for a while now. Uh, uh, when to use it, uh, how long to use it, what dose to use, what patients to select. Uh, uh, have we heard the answer today? Well, uh, I think at least we had a good advance. We had this very large study from Italy. Presented uh, by a Belgian. A world, uh, <laughs> presented by a Belgian, yeah. Uh, that is real-world data. Uh, and in fact, the results were very much in favor of the long-term use of albumin. Uh, it was quite impressive, the, the results. Of course, there was uh, one thing that was uh, uh, called the attention, is the fact that they do not yet have mortality data. So the data was very, very clear that there was a decrease for the risk of developing ascites, uh, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, uh, and most of the complications uh, of cirrhosis, but not mortality data, and mortality data is, uh, is really very important. There, there was also some discussion about the dosage of albumin that has been, that has been used uh, and also about the price, <laughs> because one of the things that uh, is always passes, it's always boring, it's an expensive uh, treatment. And so I think we do Just not have... follow here, so which trial was this, the ANSWER trial or...? or no, no, no. Or a follow-up of the new real world? Uh, this yeah. was real, uh, the real world, uh, checking uh, uh, some system they have from the pharmacies and uh, from what has been used, uh, comparing a group that has been used regularly. So sort of because confirmatory relatively to the anti-trial, basically. Uh, yeah. So yeah. compared to, the, to the, 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 the trial here, they showed it to be very effective. But also it was not completely clear why some patients were doing it and some were not. Uh, because it, in Italy it is suggested that in certain conditions they should do albumin this long term, one time a week or two times a week. Uh, so there was a group that was doing it, another that was not doing it, and there was some thousands of patients, which was a large number, uh, but there could be a bias, a selection bias. So did they use a low or high dose? So I think there was a trend when it was written down, it was relatively uh, low to I some of the other studies. It was a low dose. It was and the trend, I guess, is towards high doses, I guess, then probably stronger, both hemodynamic and non-hemodynamic effects. And, uh, yeah. yeah. In, fact, in fact, one of the questions that was put was mm. why a solo dose could be effective. Mm. Uh, but 
but the results they showed were quite impressive. We will need a lot of albumin, which should be human albumin then. <laughs> if we need to have all patients across the world having this, oh, I, I think there's really a, a signal there. The question is, though, how high is the number we need to treat? Can we do more towards in the, um, personalized or individualized care? I'm actually part of the um, Microptic Consortium, also an easel horizon 2020 consortium, and there we are developing a trial, randomized trials, also with albumin for more or less the same patient group, but developed a biomarker that we believe with relatively high prediction can predict who are likely to benefit versus unlikely to benefit. Mm -hmm. And therefore, then you can reduce the number needs to treat and target those patients who benefit. But then I'll be back in five years and say, what's <laughs> <laughs> the show? But I think to build on this, because still, if you take the end of the trial for face value, then you maybe nominate to treat us up to 20 or something. And that's, okay, it's good for the one patient's benefit, but how can we actually target the patients who really are likely to benefit for, for the range of effects that, uh, that albumin has in this uh, relatively fragile uh, group of patients. Yeah. Well, they, they still had a lot to analyze, so yeah, I yeah. have to wait for the article. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. we're in the process of analyzing the data, and uh, so it's always different to see treatment. <laughs> um, but on that session, there was also uh, something that I found very interesting. That's about the patients, uh, the ACLF3 and liver transplantation, and intensive care units uh, for uh, end-stage liver disease. Uh, because uh, what, uh, what this group found was uh, that uh, um, they compared several time, time cohorts uh, and uh, there has been always an improvement uh, in time uh, in, uh, in, the, um, in the post liver transplantation in patients with ACLF. Not only they were more frequently transplanted, but also the, the, the outcome was uh, much better. And what it was discussed, and I, at least in Portugal, we always have this problem. When we have a critical patient in, the, in our uh, words, and we want to transfer it to an intensive care unit, Usually, the intensive care units do not really like these patients. Uh, and what was I think that's a global problem. Uh? <laughs> that's not just yeah. a local problem for you. No. I think we all <laughs> face that. Yeah, so what it was discussed is that this is also an ethical problem. If some patients are going to intensive care units and then refer to liver transplantation once they... Uh, it's not that they had defined uh, strict criteria, but in fact, if the patients have conditions, they would go to liver transplantation or they would be transferred from one intensive care unit to another intensive care unit that was more uh, in, in the care of these kind of patients. And with that, there was a very significant improvement uh, in, in survival uh, in those groups. And, and the other issue that relates on the opposite side is those patients that really do not benefit from anything because they are already overcome over the edge. Yeah, over yeah. The edge. And Someone asked, but so what are exactly the patients that should not be transplanted or should not be? Yeah. And it's not completely clear. So yeah. what I said, it's that it's so several different factors like So age, what would be like your, be your takeaway? So what, what would you change? And I also think that w are you using long-term albumin for... Uh, we are not using it. No. Uh, I don't know. Any of you no. taking this up yet? It's, it's no. When, is, when are we ready to clinical translation data. or implementation and... and uh, 
and I don't know how many, it's just been similar with the debate around transplanting um, patients with alcoholic hepatitis. Yeah. Some centers do, they do well, most places it's not possible. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, it's, um, I'd say with ACLF3, most places I guess they will never reach a transplant. Yeah. I think there is few good candidates. There is good candidate, maybe, like alcoholic hepatitis, you can transplant alcoholic hepatitis. In France, we do. But when you take all the alcoholic hepatitis, at the end, the number of patients who could go to transplantation with a good uh, uh, pattern, it's not so much. And I, maybe for ACLF3, it's the same. You need to have a, a patient that uh, with a, um, a, a good uh, a good evolution at this table in the intensive care unit. If you are, uh, if the patient is more and more ill, you not transplant the patient if you have sepsis and, and so on. So I think it is the same for when you you deal with very uh, severe disease, like uric hepatitis or ACLF grade three. Uh, there is a potential uh, a candidate, but not so much, I think. But if you want to take a message from this study, I think there was a take home message that I thought was really important, was that we need to teach better our intensive yeah. care uh, people. And, uh, and, uh, they and need the to know. It was an intensivist who presented yeah, the, the data. It was an intensivist, yeah. but he, he, he acknowledged that <laughs> yeah, most of the intensivists to make are them interested, interested in liver diseases because it is a barrier. You have some, of course, our patients must be super fascinated because you have all organ system affected. You cannot have. Mm, a better challenge, so to speak. Yeah. You really need to be good. It's not just about uh, uh, keeping the airway free and, uh, and uh, maintaining a blood pressure. This is a lot more where you really combine the most difficult part of internal medicine and the most difficult part of intensive care. So this is a challenge. And, 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 uh, and really the breadth, I think, of the field of hepatology we've seen really reflected today in the, uh, in the general session, right? We've already discussed the alcoholic liver disease trial. We've discussed the uh, gender disparity problem in, in liver allocation. Um, and then we've seen phase three data from a, uh, a, a Wilson's disease uh, trial, a new copper binding agent. We've seen uh, fantastic data on looking at autoimmune hepatitis and, and, and checkpoint inhibitor-induced hepatitis, really in-depth analysis by the group of Bertram Bengtsch in Freiburg. Uh, fantastic news about uh, how, these, how the pathophysiology of this disease. We've seen phase three data uh, for hep uh, delta, Boulevardide, uh, which uh, will be discussed tomorrow, I guess, in a, in a separate uh, HEP B and HEP D session. So, so really, just today's uh, general session was really a reflection of uh, of how broad uh, uh, this is, and, and, and true. I mean, as the, this is something that we really need to teach also the uh, uh, the intensive care people. Yeah. So. Maybe uh, we are going to close the session. If you want to, uh, I have one final thing ah. I can share. I had ah. another. Ah. I had so many good exp experiences today, so you cannot close yet. No, yeah. no, <laughs> I reopened no, the session. No, we, we, we. I don't know. It's not we forgot, but but the patients. I was invited to. Uh, are you all yeah. familiar with the uh, British Liver Trust? So that's the patients' organisations for liver patients in UK, and they're doing an amazing job. So we had for easel to, together with uh, um, the British Liver Trust sort of a press event there, and I was then there representing easel. And then they have, if you go through the expedition to the easel village, you also need to go there. It's really, you feel at home. Easel hub, and then there's a truck there in the middle of everything, and that's the British Liver Trust, and they do amazing job. So this truck, truck has two rooms with fiber scans that go out in the community. And how many patients do you think they can scan a day? 100. That's pretty good. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and when they say approximately 15% of those they scan, then they have an elevated scan above um, 8. And then they're referred. Okay, and that makes sense. It was just to say this thing that there's so many stakeholders, so many people around that we all work for the same thing, but this commitment from this patient's uh, uh, group, there, the commitment from the nurses and all the other volunteers, that was just uh, amazing. And then we had a representative from a, a range of, of, of um, uh, European media that was uh, interested in, in, in that. But then discussing with the patient and, and, and the patient's uh, representative and the media, and again, all this about awareness. How comes it that uh, yeah, we have a whole chunk of the Easy Lancet Commission lying out there. You don't need to walk too far in until you learn that 300,000 people die in Europe from uh, um, liver diseases each year. And we transplant, I don't know, uh, less than 10%. No, 5,000. You know, it, it's, it's, we have a huge task there. And how do we work? And there was also discussion there around uh, prevention and, 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 and policy. So, so uh, just, uh, I think, a great uh, meeting and discussion with how the patient side is actually working for exactly the same as, 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 as we do, uh, uh, really committed people. <laughs> if, I, if I could just add, yeah. uh, I did not mention my uh, uh, presentation on social media and on Twitter. Mm. And it was also very, very interesting because she compared uh, the Twitter groups uh, that are mostly led by doctors or those that are mostly led by patients. And, uh, and in fact, it's interesting because now there are huge number of patients in these groups. And uh, this, I think, has a lot of positive aspects of supporting each other, of sharing experiences. But on the same uh, time, I think there's always some fear that they, they, they can be disseminating messages that are not scientifically correct. But as she, she mentioned, she said, but we have to accept that they may not always be passing the right message, but they are supporting a lot each other's. The, and so, so that is something so very important. And the numbers regarding the, the people that go to Twitter, the patients, it's really, I think patients are very much being empowered. Yeah. <laughs> and There's now they're definitely a, a trend that, that, that and their voices. And I think it's great because in the end of the day, everything we do, the end game is the patients. So rather have them closer and start with the patient, and then we can yeah, uh, do all these things, but still as that as a, the starting point, but also the end game. Uh. Yeah, I think collaborating with patients, it, it's primordial everywhere, even in university, you know, to teach for young and future doctors. And it's a lot of yeah. talk in civil university. I know in our university in, in, in Paris City, we're talking about it, but we are not there yet. But I know in, in your university, but using patients to help to train you know, future doctors to help them to understand the, the, the patient point of view and really creating expert patients and collaborating with them, not only for, yeah, for disease uh, you know, association, but also you know, to become better doctors, I think. The patient knows more the disease than the yeah, students and uh, to use for sure at the beginning. And, uh, all this yeah. knowledge, it's yeah. kind of, it's, it's a knowledge it's yeah. that's, uh, that needs to be used. thanks to the easel patient guidelines, yeah. Yeah. at least for uh, fatty yeah, liver disease. But uh, we, we always had that difficulty to know exactly who should be our patient partners. <laughs> I remember for all the time that I've been in uh, the EU uh, policy council, and uh, we, because there are some groups of patients, but then there 
there are some uh, areas or some diseases that do not have so many interested groups. So uh, it's sometimes challenging to find uh, the, the groups whom we, and for example, I think that in alcohol related diseases, we never have uh, good champions or... Uh, no, no, we definitely, but that was really the core there for liver trust in UK because they have a particular problem around alcohol. They were really focused. That was the first thing they told about the price. This is the key problem. This is what we discussed with the patients coming in. So they had all these materials and all this advice. Of course, they sent them on to the healthcare system and also doing the policy around, okay, how can we push towards pricing, availability, uh, um, advertising, you know, some of these policy thing there. And, but there, I think we can also, in these collaboration there, learn from each other. So we can learn from the patient organization, but they can also learn for us. And then we can maybe push a little more to, to embrace, let's say, all liver diseases, at least for the umbrella organization, that they need to be advocates for not just a specific one, unless this is really what they do, but, but just like we at Easel really embrace uh, all liver diseases and all in, interested in, 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 in liver disease. But this is a really a, a thing that is unfolding right now and in the coming years and will become uh, more important and I think will make what we do in, with the goal of improving patient care more successful, I'm sure. Uh, I think in the last 10 years there has been uh, an enormous increase uh, in the interest of patients and, and uh, the way patients are now getting involved and are getting more, more active. Yeah. Yeah. There's also another thing I'd like to add regarding the excitement of being together again. <laughs> <laughs> the, the number of people that I have seen seeing each other and hugging like uh, so emotional <laughs> because they had not seen each other for like two or three years. And like, oh, I think that's something very, very special. And I was also very much impressed with the number of, uh, of, the, of people that were on these uh, sessions, on the abstract sessions now in the afternoon. Uh, most, well, I, I went to the complications of cirrhosis. There were people seated. Uh, uh, in the floor, yeah, yeah. and for example, Nathalie, you could not enter because <laughs> it was completely full. So, uh, in fact, people are here and they are interested in going to the sessions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a really uh, hunger that haven't really been satisfied for years, so that's, uh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've seen at least 15 people for the first time that I've seen so many times already now been collaborating on Zoom, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. it's like they're actual real 3D <laughs> people and uh, not, not just like the uh, ABBA avatars that are. <laughs> everywhere here in, uh, in London right now, right? Well, thank you for inviting us. Thank you for a great discussion. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs>